0: of Relative Pitch. Today, we are super excited to have one of our former mentors, uh, Dr. Stephen Plate, who is currently the professor and chair um, of music at the University of Central Arkansas. Hi, Dr. Plate. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's so good to be here and uh, good to see all of you again and uh, catch up. But I want to make one correction. I'm not your former mentor. I'm your current mentor. Absolutely. uh, I will always be. And it's one of the uh, nice things about uh, being a professor of music and dealing with students, um, you know, over all these years is that I get to champion the things that you're uh, trying to do, the things you are doing, and to, uh, I've got your back.
0: Absolutely. And um, Dr. Plate has been somebody who has affected all of us in very different ways when we were all at Kennesaw together. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the opportunities that we were that we were given while we were there and the amazing things that we got up to. But Dr. Plate, just tell everybody about a little bit about how you got to where you currently are and just kind of like all your education and everything.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity. Well, first of all, I want to um, tell you that uh, at at this stage of my life or for all of these years of doing this, I've become rather introspective and um, looking back over many of my experiences. But just in in uh, in short, I grew up in New York City. I had wonderful opportunity to uh, study uh, piano. You know, when, when I think back on it, one of my most um, effective early lessons was with a woman by the name of Mrs. Erickson. Uh, in New York City, it's divided up into, because it's, it's so large, but it's divided up into little neighborhoods. And so in my little neighborhood, she was the neighborhood piano teacher. And uh, she seemed extremely uh, elderly when I started to study with her, but I walked in and sat down, and she showed me, you know, the piano. And of course, I was familiar because I would climb up on the bench and play, which is why I started to study. Why my, why my parents thought it was important that I study. So, <laughs> I walked in. The very first thing she did to me did for me was show me this invention that she had created about music theory. It was a picture of the keyboard had all the flats and all the sharps and all the time signatures. And you, you would, it was a, um, kind of a, a laminated slide through where you could see the keys. And from the very first day I was seven years old, she told me about the importance of music theory and the practice of music. And that $3 an hour that I was paying for lessons way back then, or that my father was paying for lessons way back then. Um, I'm I'm mindful of the impact that that woman had, you know, on my life. So anyway, I stayed with her for a little while. And, um, I I think she thought I was talented, but my dad thought I was more talented than the neighborhood piano teacher. And he went searching and found a uh, teacher by the name of Gloria Volante. Gloria, uh, was a Lincoln center graduate and she, uh, she saw something in me and she started pushing on me and filling me with everything that she had. And some of my fondest recollections of her were her admonishing me that I really, if I practiced, <laughs> I really could achieve something. And you know, you all know me for my, my, my saying, you don't have to practice every day, just on the days that you eat or on the days that end in Y or anyway." I think uh, she was after me all the time because she said, "You know, you're a pretty good sight reader, but imagine if you had practice." Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I, in fairness, I wasn't, I wasn't faithful to that at the time. I had a lot of things going on and a lot of different desires in my mind, and I didn't know if being a professional musician was one of them. But I had the opportunity, and so I studied with Gloria, and she had me performing at Steinway Hall, which was Kitty Corner at the time in Manhattan to Carnegie hall. And if you were in the green room, you could look out the little window in the green room and see the canopy for Carnegie hall. And she kept pulling me to the window and pointing to Carnegie hall saying, you could be great. You could be great. You see that building, that's where you're headed. That's where you're headed. And she kind of put that in front of me. So, um that's some of my early thing. The other thing I wanna do is is, uh, is I wanna bow in the direction of my high school and middle school music teachers, because in, in New York City, one of the great things about a cultural city like that is the, the musical training and the musical examples that are put before you that you can take advantage of. And so every Saturday morning, I think it was from 9 till noon, something like that, or 9 till 11 or 11.30, we would have borough-wide band, orchestra, and choir. And you had to audition. It wasn't open to everyone. You had to actually pass muster. And I remember those music teachers gave up their lives. Can you imagine every Saturday morning for three, three and a half hours, we would meet and do the greatest of literature. In fact, I found in my notes not long ago, a a program book from our performance, which was in, which was actually in Brooklyn because we had to go to a venue that was large enough to symphony of a thousand. We could easily do a symphony of a thousand. So we were introduced to this great literature. Anyway, there's a picture of me, I think in the eighth grade holding my tuba playing in one of these performances. And uh, I just remember the camaraderie, the friendships, Um, The trial, the trials of difficult music and, you know, trying trying to play again. I wasn't prepared to be a professional musician. I hadn't gotten bitten by that yet. But um, I I have very fond recollections of those teachers. I still could name them and I can see them admonishing me and coming after me for, you know, being a better musician. And I just want to honor them today by saying th- those, are, those are difficult things to do and to have that kind of commitment to reach out to students who don't even know if they're interested, but uh, they provided lifelong you know, lasting examples of greatness and of great opportunities. And so I want to you know, recognize them today from my early childhood. I was 16 and a half years old and I was going down a dubious pathway and some of my friendships and the things that I was trying to do. And I had, uh, actually, I had an epiphany that night. And uh, I realized that the direction that I was going was not where I needed to go. And I, uh, the, the very next day, one of, the, one of the challenges of leaving your set of friends, these were not my musical friends, by the way. These were acquaintances that I had made. But one of the challenges of leaving a group of friends behind at that age is feeling alone and rejected. Well, it kind of fit the paradigm of the musician pretty well cuz we do what we do we do alone a lot of the time, right? So, um but I but the very next night I was invited to a uh, a get together with a bunch of like-minded people and that night I met a man who had just graduated with a degree in piano performance and uh, he started me on a pathway. We started talking, I sat down, played Beethoven form and a Beethoven sonata that I was working on. I think it was Pathetique. And, uh, he said, would you like to study with me? And for the next year and a half, he prepared me for college. So when it came to auditioning and getting ready, so I went to the school where he went, which was Evangelical University in Springfield, Missouri. It was a small school, but it had national accreditation for music. And, uh, I met a group of men and women, professional men and women, who were the epitome of professionalism and inquiry and industriousness. And even though they didn't have a lot when it came to money or great buildings, they poured themselves into all of us and started to mold us and to make us into uh, what we could be, even for me, what I never even thought expected that I would be. And I never went to college to study music to become a teacher. I went to college to become a better musician. And I would say this to anyone listening today who's disadvantaged, you know, I grew up in a family that supported me in in music, but were themselves not professional musicians, and they couldn't give you clear insights into uh, what it took to be a professional musician. And even though I was trained by a Lincoln Center type person. Well, she, She, um, I think she'd be surprised today. I've, I've lost contact with her. I don't even know what she's doing, but she'd be surprised, I think, with some of my lessons and where I've ended up. But uh, I still wanna honor those uh, early on people and those uh, college professors who started me on uh, on the pathway that I've never wavered from. And I was walking from the practice room around midnight very first week of school as a as a freshman music major and i realized that i was in the environment that i wanted to spend all of my days in and so right then and there i decided that i was going to be a music major and i was going to dedicate my life to being as good as i could be not better than other people which i also want to emphasize it's not about us compared to whomever it's about living up to the fullest potential that, uh, you know, that we have inside of ourselves and the dreams that we have and chasing after those dreams. And so all these years later, uh, 41, by the way, I'm in my 41st year of higher education. Wow. And uh, yes, wow, isn't that something, 41 years. Um, most people get to 30 years and retire, but I have a lot of passion after what I'm doing. And I must say, when I met you folks at KSU, I'm doing the same exact thing here uh, that I've done everywhere that I've been. And um, I love this process. Anyway, um, my piano teacher, I was a piano major. My piano teacher um, is, is, uh, has passed away a long time ago. One of my greatest honors uh, on a personal level in my life is when she uh, passed away after a battle with cancer. Uh, I, got, I got very close to her. And, and uh, as we do with our primary teachers, um, she probably knew me as well or better than most people at the time. And she br- breathed into me tidbits along the way. For instance, I was working on a Beethoven sonata because uh, she told me, she actually said one day, Stephen, are you a, 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 are you a virtuoso piano? And I said, well, gee, um, I don't know what that means, really. I never thought about it. And I said, well, I don't know that I am. She said, well, when you can master this Beethoven sonata the way Beethoven intended it to be played, you could consider yourself then a, a virtuoso pianist. So I, I, I just spent the rest of my time trying to become a virtuoso pianist, but um, uh, my freshman year, Anthony, I became very enamored of, of conducting. And because of my early on theory training, I, I just I just loved it and I excelled at it. And um, But because of my placement in theory, I had an opening in my schedule. So I, I took basic conducting, which was more of a sophomore class, I think. So from my very first semester, I, be, I fell in love with conducting and my early on uh, conducting teacher, I still owe to this day, many of the early opportunities I had to stand in front of a band or a wind ensemble. Or you know, wet my desire to be in front of a symphony orchestra or a choir or anything that I could make make music with. And he used to say, as does Elizabeth Green, if you don't have an ensemble to conduct, create one. <laughs> there's no there's no reason why you can't be conducting music if that's really what you're uh, what you're called to do or what you're meant to do. And so um, I, I embarked on a career. I think I was in my sophomore year, maybe my junior year when I had my first critical review of a, of a performance that I conducted and I was living right up the road here in Springfield, Missouri. And um, so when it came to choosing graduate school, I applied to everywhere. You know, I, I applied to the, to the name schools that you would still name today, the Eastman's of the world, the uh, Indiana's of the world. At the time, the Frost School, because, uh, uh, Fred Fennell was, was conducting down there. And uh, just, uh, you know, people whose names that I had learned and had heard along the way. And I started writing to people. <laughs> and uh, I, I can say in hindsight, I, was, I got turned down by the best. I mean, I have been rejected by everybody <laughs> at one point or time in my career, but I always um, considered that these were open and closed door opportunities. And that open doors were the opportunities that we were supposed to walk through. and Closed doors, obviously, were the things we weren't supposed to do or didn't get to do. But I got some nice letters from, I remember the one I got from Fred Fennell. He said, you know, because he was conducting the wind ensemble, but he was also conducting orchestras at the time. And um, of course, he had a reputation from Eastman, right? And I think he retired to School. Anyway, he said, If I started you, I'm going to retire. I wouldn't be able to finish you and uh, to finish you in your degree program. I just would feel terrible about that. So no, I'm not going to teach you. And I I appreciated that honesty. But back to my teacher, uh, my piano teacher, working on a Beethoven piano sonata, uh, working on a chromatic scale, and I, I couldn't get it to lay in my hand. And she showed me a finger pattern and she said, have you ever tried a chromatic scale with this finger? I said, no. And I did it and she had a large hand. I have a large hand and it <laughs> fell into my hand better than it had been uh, prior to that. And she said, do you know where I learned that finger pattern? I said, I have no idea. And I was embarrassed that I hadn't thought about it but she said, well, I learned it from my teacher. Do you know who my teacher was? Well, at the age of 18, I hadn't thought very much about who t- whose teachers were who. And it was part of my naivete and my ignorance Uh, And she told me her teacher's name to this day. I don't remember the name of her teacher because that was important, but it wasn't what she was trying to tell me. She said, I learned that from my teacher. Do you know who my teacher was? I said, no, I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed. I don't know his name. She said, well, she told me the name. She said, you know who his teacher was? And I said, I'm sorry. No, I don't. She said his teacher was Sergei Rachmaninov. And she taught me a lesson that day that in the most unexpected places, you get to learn with people you have no idea who they are. You have no idea where they've been. And so we look at these great music schools that we get to go to and these great music schools that people have worked to create that have gone before us. And what she taught me that day was in unsung places, in the far reaches of the world, you can get to study with a really gifted person that you don't deserve, that you don't even know about. And she taught me this great thing about succession from teacher to student, teacher to student over generations. And so in my bio, you might've seen that I'm a third generation Rachmaninoff protege because I didn't study with him. I studied with her who studied with him you know, who studied with his student, who studied with him. And if you've been around piano music very much, you know about Carl Charny's School of Velocity. Well, Charny was a student of who do we know? Beethoven. Click, right? It's like, oh, wow. Every time you sit and try to play Carl Charny, you're sitting with Beethoven. Isn't that amazing? Fantastic. So I won't belabor the point, but you get my point, right? It's uh, it doesn't, it's not just the school where you study, it's where all those faculty members have been and you know what they've been put through and what their teachers have been through. And so without even knowing it, you're in the you're in the presence of greatness. And every opportunity to learn is an opportunity in greatness, right? Well, I can say that again and again and again about many of my teachers and where they have been. where they caused me to go and i might not have the wherewithal at any given moment to be what those teachers were or even what they wanted me to be but it's the striving it's the it's the opportunity to sit in their presence to sit at their feet if you will and to be challenged in our minds and in our hearts in ways we never expected well this the rest of the story is uh, my piano teacher wanted me to study piano my conducting teachers wanted me to study conducting. And um, so when I, I auditioned, I actually got a positive letter from Cincinnati Conservatory. And I, and I might add, it was the only positive letter I got from graduate school. And uh, they invited me to audition on piano, tuba, and, uh, and uh, conducting. And I, if I remember correctly, I got accepted in all of those, but it was really that conducting that had stolen my heart much to the chagrin of my piano teacher. And so I embarked on a on a study of of conducting, and my but my conducting teacher said to me, Stephen, I think you should do piano. It wasn't because he didn't believe in me. It wasn't because he didn't see something inside of me. He wanted me to have a job, and he said, if you look at the symphony orchestras around America, there's only one conductor. <laughs> there are several musicians who sit in that ensemble, but there's only one conductor. It's very competitive. It's hard to get a job. And uh, I appreciated that concern about me, but I chased my dreams anyway. It's another point I want to make today. It's not about what our teachers think. It's about what drives us. It's about what's inside of us, what's awakened inside of us and what we dream. Because um, we have to live that dream. Um, my oldest daughter was a, was a, uh, a, a pre-med major in, in college. And after her junior year, she came to me and she said, Dad, would you be upset with me if I didn't if I, if I didn't complete my, my pre-med? And I said, no, sweetheart, it's your life. It's your dream. I was never the one who said you should become a physician. If that's your dream, you have to live it. So that's another really important thing that I learned. And while I was finishing my master's degree in conducting at Cincinnati Conservatory, Um, They challenged me in ways I hadn't been challenged at the undergraduate level, but that's what happens, right? We go from this level to that level, and partly it's a synthesis, partly it's deepening the well, and um, I had opportunity to audition for my doctor's degree in conducting, and uh, they they accepted me. They were clear to tell me, however, that they would not allow me to complete my degree if I did not uh, get a job first, because another thing that I want to say today, it's really important to have a job because there's no teacher like teaching. And I'm not just talking about a teaching job. I'm, I'm talking about a professional job where you make music and where you're in charge of other people making music and, uh, and, have that opportunity. And so, so, um, I was, and, and I was confused because I was I was uh, IBM was hiring music theorists because my minor was theory, my cognitive area was theory, and they were hi- uh, IBM was hiring theorists to become coders and computer people because they found a similar mind mindset and a similar training was beneficial to their company, and they were paying all of this money and uh, benefits and signing bonuses, and I was actually filling out an application to do that. The night when my telephone rang, it was in April, and it was my old conducting teacher from Evangelical University calling to offer me a job. And so, when you're confused and you're not sure of your direction because the direction seems unclear and the doors seem to close in front of you at every turn, the dream stays alive. And that phone call comes in the, in the, in the 23rd hour at the uh, 53rd minute. And uh, so I embarked on a career that didn't even pay half what IBM was offering, I might add, but it was the thing that I was chasing and the thing that I had dreamed about. And that dream became a reality. And then I went every summer to finish my doctor's degree. And uh, that that is a trial and a story for another time, all of its own. But um, I do remember trying to finish my doctor's degree and, uh, and uh, sitting at my desk about midnight, the, de- the night before my uh, history comprehensive exam. And I've got probably 50 books on my, and piles in front of me. And I thought, what can I, stu- what can I study tonight to prepare me for this exam? And I closed my eyes and I reached out and I grabbed the text. It was Thayer's book on Beethoven in the life of Beethoven, I thought, oh, that was a mistake. Certainly they wouldn't ask me something so obvious. And I remember going into that room, first question on the test, something like this, paraphrase, for the next hour and 45 minutes, write everything that you know about the life and music of Beethoven. Hmm. And so once again, providence, I think it's divine providence, but... Many people call it coincidence. So, um, and the rest is history. I finished that degree and have gone on to a, a, um, a career that is unlike what I planned, unlike what I thought. I got to do things I think I deserved. I didn't get to do other things that I wanted to do and thought I deserved. I got to do things I didn't deserve, and I got to go places I didn't deserve. And I, at this Vantage point 41 years in looking backwards. I'm thankful and grateful for the time that I've gotten to spend being a professional music and other than some financial. Uncertainties. I have no regrets because I've gotten to do the world doing music and I've gotten, I've gotten to visit the world. I was looking at Instagram early this morning when I got up and there was an Italian singer who was performing at St. Peter's Basilica in their sacred music, International Sacred Music Festival, which was this morning. My wife and I were sitting on the couch and I looking at photographs. And uh, t- 2017, I was invited to the International Sacred Music Festival in uh, in Rome, Italy, and then uh, I also went up to Montepulciano in Tuscany, and uh, I sat in in St. Peter's Basilica for a performance of Mozart Requiem with some of the most fantastic musicians from Japan that I've ever had the pleasure of of meeting, and I also got to sit in the in the Pope's library in the Vatican for a performance by the Sistine Chapel choir. And so we've been reflecting on these opportunities and just looking backwards a little bit at the places we've gone and things we've been invited to do and with gratefulness and thankfulness. And so here I am today with four of my charges, former four of my former charges, uh, who continue on in your lives, chasing your dreams and, I think very fondly to those times in my office at KSU when we would sit and talk about these very things, right, and and the dreams that you're having, but also many other things. So thanks for letting me reminisce a little bit. I could tell you many, many stories, but I'll stop and uh, let you ask me questions or whatever else you want to do.
0: No, I mean, it was, it was amazing. It, it really does feel like old times of being in your office and just having these, I don't know if you call it, like coffee, coffee talks, brainstorming sessions, all those things. But, um, definitely makes me, makes me think back to those days. And, um, I think we were, didn't know exactly how special uh, that situation was because there I know plenty of people who have never said a word to their administrators at their school let alone had like uh, relationships that like like have helped them discover who they were as individuals and as musicians um, and as educators so thank you because that that is very special and obviously it's something that has impacted all of us like to this day and you are still someone who is on our minds <laughs> and on our hearts so um it's it's still great every time going back and hearing the stories because every time it's like i hear something new i didn't know <laughs> before so yeah
1: yeah did you hear me say i didn't practice enough
0: <laughs> yes definitely heard that part <laughs> One thing,
2: i will always remember the freshman year first symposium The first thing uh, you practice on every day you eat and every day ends with the Y. And I remember sitting there like, oh, I need to practice. Because, you know, when you're in high school, you're like, oh, I I practice for five minutes or don't practice at all. It'll be fine. But no, like that that was literally the first, you know, type of advice we got in college. And it was a big symposium. Like the whole school of music was in here. So like that was... The first thing I ever remember of college in i the- I still so cram practiced the first year.
0: No, you didn't. Mind. Like, it's just
2: like it's like studying for exams. You throw it all at the end, it'll work.
0: <laughs> uh, uh,
1: <Jesus>. Not, not.
0: <laughs> he has learned <laughs> so much from then. Um, <laughs> But I just remember actually, I think it was the audition because I think you used to come to auditions and talk to the parents and I the did. students. But specifically, whenever the, the students, when we started going to actually do our auditions, you would stay and talk to the parents and take questions. And I remember my mom after my audition, I came back and everything, and she goes, "Oh my gosh, that tall man! He he's so great with he he says the, the most amazing things." And I wrote these all down for, for you, and um, you were always it makes the same. Hard her in in her mind whenever she thinks about ksu in my time at ksu she always thinks thinks about you and always is like the, the tall man dr plate like all his ideas and so yeah you were you were so significant not only for the students who are there the administration the other faculty and staff who were there but also the parents who came in for auditions and those brief like uh tours and everything you just were a staple
1: you know, um, I, I, I really enjoyed that. And one of the reasons that I decided along in my career that that was important was, I got to talk to so many moms and dads who are afraid of allowing their children to be, to be in the arts. And you know, it's probably um, a good opportunity to say this in this podcast, we've all watched for the last year and a half an entire industry be shut down around the world. And almost everybody that I knew, except for those in education, was out of work with no remedy and seemingly no one to care. But I'm so proud of of all of the ingenuity and creativity that was created, like this podcast (laughs) in, in part, as a result of sitting at home not getting to do what we do, except to practice. Mm. And many be, many people became discouraged over that because practice for what, right? So I do wanna say again, I look with this fan, at this vantage point backwards, never regretting a career uh, in the arts. And as I've said to all of you many times, A time is coming in our very near future where there aren't nearly enough musicians of training and of substance for all of the jobs that are gonna be vacated by those like me who are gonna soon be retiring. And when you think about the need for excellence and for broad-mindedness about music and inclusion for music, this is a time and even greater challenges and times are coming. So um, I'm so glad you guys are in the arts and studying music and that you're continuing to make a way for young people who might not, other than with your influence, have the opportunity to even study at the level that they are, you know? So Anthony, when you're standing in front of those choirs and working with those high school musicians, remember what I said about those teachers that I had. They kept me honest and they kept pushing me towards a prize I didn't even understand, but I still still needed them. You know, they were invaluable to what I ended up doing. And the tragedy after all these years is I've never seen them again. I've never gotten to tell them So another thing I would like recorded here for posterity is you can never say thank you enough, especially to those people who in part got you where you are. This
0: is true. Yeah.
1: Anyway, again, I'm dominating, asking more questions.
0: No, no, it's amazing. And um, something that I think I took away the most or that I enjoyed the most about getting to work with you at ksu were the opportunities for like i guess student leadership and programs that were oriented around like student like students and being led by students and obviously somsac was something that was a very big um and significant thing for like anthony and myself michael who was also on the council and you who are you are a faculty advisor for that and um and so I've seen, I think those programs are becoming more normal, I think, around the, the our, in our field, because it's necessary. And I just wanted to say, like, that was getting to do some so and getting to know all the little granular details that goes into some, a beast, like a student organization, was so significant and also was a huge part of my desire and my in, interest and my now passion for arts administration and arts leadership. In general, so.
1: And congratulations for your internship. And, uh, but, uh, but for the sake of those who are listening, they probably don't know what Somsac is. What is Somsac?
0: Right. This is true. So Somsac was this it was technically KSU, so Kennesaw State University School of Muted Music Student Advisory Council. <laughs> I a always baby to that.
2: idea a little baby idea that happened in like May of our sophomore year. And we were sitting outside of your office. You no, it were...
0: was freshman year, right? Like it was our. It was. I know
2: it was very early. It was very. It was
0: early sophomore year. Before. It was sophomore year.
2: And I was, was, was in, in the,
0: the office. Yeah. Y'all were outside the office.
2: Yeah. That's it. It was sophomore year because we were getting it ready for our junior year, mm-hmm. and I just remember, hey, let's see if this works. We didn't even have a name for it. We was just like, we want something for students, where it it kind of is like a middleman type of thing. And I remember going into your office and we just kind of spitting out ideas. Honestly, I think we were really kind of spitfiring. I think we were just like, word vomiting at you for so long. And then I it's just, you processed all of it. And then you like formed exactly what we were thinking into a very intelligent sentence. And it was like, okay, great. We're all on the same page. So that was really, really good. And I know for me, it was definitely an experience that I will always take with me because the things that we learned um, creating SOMSAC and actually, you know, making sure it was a long standing organization, it was a lot, but it definitely, definitely uh, kind of benefited us um, to be who we are today as leaders. So thank you for uh, really kind of just. You know letting our vision kind of fly so thank you so much for that
1: well I want to emphasize what you just said you're very thank- you're 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 welcome um, it was your idea it wasn't my idea although I had been charged I don't even know if I ever told you this I had been charged by our national creditors with the idea that it's important that students have a say and remember I'd have those um, I don't even know what we call them fireside chats or whatever we had in the Risada Hall where, where anybody could submit questions and you know we'd, we'd sit and I'd tell you what I understood to be the truth. I don't know if those were beneficial to everyone, but one of the things I thought was good about SOMSAC, and I'd be interested to know what you think other than what it did for you personally, what are you most proud of? Because when I would talk to the students, just students, just students and me and my staff. Um, I felt like it was already things I had said to you that I was repeating to them. But as student leaders, what are you you most proud of in the uh, student association that you were able to create?
0: I think the biggest thing that happened for us, and this also happened for the representatives that we had on, on SOMSAC as well, is they had people who would just come to them to say, hey, I really want to talk to you guys about this. Or, hey, I want to come to the next SOMSAC meeting and kind of talk about this situation or this, whatever was happening. And for me, that was when those, when that started happening, that was when I kind of realized that, oh, we have a presence here. And people are now thinking like whenever, things happen we would go take this to some sex so they would find one of us um and they would want to come in and talk about it and you know there were things that we could handle and there are other things where that we were like we have to take this to somebody else which is usually you um in that situation and we understood and they understood as students we were still at the same level as them we just had the opportunity um, and we had made a medium for us to communicate directly, you know, to you and administration in general. And so I think seeing how people were kind of getting used to that, and they were open to that idea and seeing the, I think it was the need, because we already knew there was a need for it. But seeing that, um, the, or getting the affirmation that it was definitely something that was benefiting and needed by the students, I think was the most special part of it for me, in particular
1: well good i i um i am proud of you because you expressed the fact that there was a need and um even though you came to talk to me about it remember that i'm the one who sent you to create the constitution i didn't do it for you i sent you to create the bylaws and i'm proud of you because you made it a professional organization you actually got it you got it um approved as a uh, what do you call it, RSN? Um, RSO, yeah, RSO. RSO yeah. With uh, that was an official standing group that was funded by the university. After a while, right? So, I don't know. I haven't heard from KSU, although I hear from faculty all the time. I haven't heard from students about whether that's an ongoing thing. I hope it is, because I think it would certainly be invaluable to the students who are there and to the new director that they have. Right? So.
2: It's from last I heard, it is still up and running, and they. um, uh, it's funny because now the ones that were little freshmen when I was there are now the presidents and, and, you know, everything. So um, it's just always um, interesting uh, to see how that happens. And um, I know the current president uh, actually reached out to me um, actually a couple years ago Um, And just said that seeing um, diversity in that group really was very important um, to him because you know we, when you were at a school, sometimes it feels like your your voice is not heard. Sometimes, especially I mean, Kennesaw, even though we we say we're small, we're actually not small. The school is quite. Big as a both school of music and um, the university in general, and so uh, he said that seeing us, the first generation of Somsac, you know, being diverse and being vocal, um, it really gave him the confidence um, to really uh, be good at what he do throughout his his career at Kennesaw and also go out to be the president of Somsac. I mean, it really benefited him as well. Um, So, I think that was one of the big things for me um, about being a leader is hearing those stories of like, I, you know, for me, I'm just doing what, you know, I thought was best. You know, I was just living my life, but uh, seeing that it affected somebody else in a positive way, um, I think that is one of the biggest compliments um, that I have received
1: since. Party. Even even though we're not at KSU anymore, I did see the opening convocation that you referenced early on, and it was gratifying to me to see that 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 Bailey uh, the Morgan Hall packed mm-hmm. on opening day. Because one of the things that was also that I was busy doing there was making it grow, mm-hmm. and so I'm glad to see that that legacy lives on, and that your legacy lives on. And uh, I did think it was a pretty funky name at for SOMSAC, but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm so glad that it stuck. And I'm so glad for the ingenuity and the creativeness that it took to create something of lasting value. And I think we all learned something in doing that, right?
0: Absolutely. And from, from that, I took his, all of that stays with us, right, wherever we go. And so... Here I am in my master's at the University of New Mexico, um, post pandemic, right? All last year, I was not, we weren't on campus. Like I think we, I had one class, it was bibliography and research that started off um, on campus, but it got shut down because, or like uh, campus got shut down again, like last November, cause cases went back up. Um, we weren't doing ensembles really. We had a few chamber opportunities outside with masks and everything. So the first year really wasn't, a year on campus, it was through Zoom. And so coming back this, uh, this now my second and last year <laughs> at UNM, um, it's now I'm getting the feel, where everyone's getting the feel of life on campus. And with the amazingness of being in person again and getting to see our colleagues and our professors in person, also comes the conversations of what is needed um, and what more can be done. And you know me, I can't stay out of anything. I'm nosy. And so (laughs) I immediately um, set up a meeting with not only the director of the School of Music, but the dean of the College of Fine Arts, because I'm already seeing things that I'm like, oh, there are things that can be done to make this situation better, you know. And one of the first ideas that I come up with is not only a music um, student advisory uh, board is what they're calling it, but also a, a college-wise. So, um, CFA, College of Fine Arts, um, Student Advisory Board, where there's going to be representatives from all the factions of art. Um, and that's something I'm currently working on with them and working on constitutions and other things. And it's super exciting and it's, it's familiar. Um, and I know how important and how significant it's going to be. And, you know, the funny thing is they're like, but you're leaving in a year. Like, you're not even going to be able to, like, um, be around to be one of those people. And I'm like, that's not the point. It's the point is keeping it and continuing it for the next, you gener- know, the people who are going to come here who are going to need it. And the, the the undergrads and the first year masters who need something like that, you know, and um, so those things carry and I it's just so special to, to continue being able to see the impact of something that a couple of sophomores in undergrad, just conceptualized, and that you helped us kind of bring to fruition. So I wanted to mention that.
1: That's fantastic, Lauren, and, and uh, I'm, I'm reminded as you were speaking of, of something that was written by John Gardner in his book, The Master Student, or The Master Teacher, I'm, f- I'm sorry, I forget which, which it is. But while you are where you are, be completely where you are. While you are where you are, be completely there. It might be transient you might be on your way somewhere else i know that you're all looking to the future and what the future holds for you but while you are where you are entirely brace it embrace it and uh and own it and own the territory that you've been given or allowed to share and uh i look forward to even greater things from you as you you know progress into the future and yes last year was was a a Different year. I won't say it's difficult. It was a different year. And I've often said if I could have back every moment that I spent on COVID planning, we could have actually become great. (laughs) But uh, the fact uh, we did have ensembles, we never stopped playing, we never stopped performing, but we didn't do it for live audiences. We just recorded them and then broadcast them, you know. And so um we did have spatial issues we did have mask issues we have puppy pads on the floor for all the brass players and and uh little spittoons for them and um sanitizing wipes like crazy and yes uh it's uh very different and I hope you've all been well and that you have been without COVID and have been able to stay away from it and that I hope you're all vaccinated and uh and staying well so what else can we talk about
0: I've been talking a lot did you guys So i just
2: i the only thing um before we cut off and have to depart is when you when you finally got the bug to be an, an arts administrator what was that because we've talked about you know piano we've talked about you being a conductor when was your calling to be in administration like i i know we we i know i've talked to you about you know the love of conducting the love of you know making music in in the class in the room um when did the arts administration call and how how did you how are you able to just kind of leave kind of but not leave but like you know just kind of venture on how like what was that process
1: thank you for that question um i, I want to say There's not an easy answer to that, except that it was gradual, and I can point to um, my freshman teaching job, where I spent almost a decade. I was put in charge of little things. I was charged with starting an orchestra. Well, that's musical, right? But it's also logistic. It's also administrative and in fact you've probably learned if you haven't already that 90 percent or more of the time you spend as a conductor is spent planning for playing planning for rehearsals you know planning for how it's going to go planning for what the season is going, going to look like planning for who those musicians are and then auditioning them and then so then i was in charge of an instrumental program and then i was in charge of a um, another program and then i was Invited to the university fellows, and then I was on the graduate faculty, and then I was, you know, uh, writing things for the National Association of Schools of Music, and then I was writing things for accreditation for North Central. And all along the way, these are bits and pieces that fit, were falling into place in my heart and in my mind. And when I truly got the opportunity, it's not what I decided to do, it's what administrators saw in me. You know, because leadership, academic leadership, comes as a promotion from, you know, the provost office or the vice president for academic affairs office or the president's office or the dean's office or, you know, wherever that might be. And so I got more and more and more opportunities to administer uh, programs. And of course, I'm, I'm a musician. I'm conducting a, you know, a metropolitan orchestra for 15 years. And people saw... Uh, I was doing contracts. I was negotiating halls. I was negotiating um, players and soloists and designing brochures for seasons and t- you know selling tickets and raising money and uh, forming um, you know 501c3 boards and working with attorneys and working with banks and working with um, meeting um, new people. Constantly, you could help to further, You know, the mission and all of a sudden I found out that I was an administrator. I thought I was a music director. I was a music director, right? Um, I had a president tell me one time that he thought I was a presidential, Mm. that I should be a university president. And and I have in fact been nominated and and applied for several presidencies. I just haven't gotten there yet. His comment is important. He said, well you're 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 an administrator. you're you're already presidential. It's just your entree to it was music. We all have our pathway. We all have the way into which we enter into this. And your your point about I got out of it to get into it is kind of humorous to me because you know, even as early as this morning, Teresa said to me, don't you miss being a conductor? Don't you miss being a professor? Well, I still am a conductor. I still am a professor. And so what I would say, Anthony, is seasons of life. I made a choice. I was offered a deanship. I was offered a chairship. I made a choice at a certain point to shift the focus of my career. And I would say this about it. My conducting career was seven days a week, 12 months a year. It was morning, noon, and night. My family would go to bed at nine, 10 o'clock. And here I am. The sto- scores open up and I'm studying until 11, 12, 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Put those, get some sleep, get up and do it all again. And at a certain point in my case, it was family because I was being invited to travel a lot. I was getting guest conducting appearances around the world. And I was in Europe and then I was in Germany. And then I was in the Orient and I was getting these opportunities. And uh, I was, but I, but being home, wasn't an opportunity. And I had three little kids. I guess I was home enough to have three little kids, but I wasn't home. Very much. <laughs> um, that was a funny. And anyway, um, it, it's, it's a, I don't have a single thing that I point to, except that I was doing the job of an administrator and someone else noticed, right. And uh, another thing that I would like in this recording for posterity's sake is administration is people oriented. This work that we do in administration is all about people. And I like to say this all the time is I don't have any trouble treating people the way I would like to be treated. And at the end of the day, it's all about people. It's all about music, but it's all about people. And you know, in music, we get some prickly personalities. We get some egocentric, whatever, whatever, because they're masterfully created. They're masterfully proficient at music. But underneath that is personhood. What drives that is personhood. So don't ever get to the point where you think that people are expendable because you're administrating not programs, but you're administrating people. And uh, it's really important and it's personal. So, you know, I, when I have faculty in my office, have their annual review rather than me talk, I let them talk. And then I'll tell them about my perceptions about what they've said. It's like, you know, how was your scholarship this year? Well, I did. Well, and I'll start to interact with what they told me rather than telling them what their job is. Because at the end of the day, we all have jobs and we're all employees, but we're individual uh, people created individually and, and, and it's really fragile we are fragile and so people need to know that they're being celebrated even people that need to work on it (laughs) can be celebrated right there's always something that can be said that's positive and we can all work at being better people right and we can all practice more (laughs) (laughs)
0: like how you had to tag that at the end
1: (laughs) start there and we end there
0: (laughs) (laughs) For our um, our audience members who probably consist of performers, educators, administrators, or people who are aspiring to be those things, um, what, what piece of advice would you like to leave with them?
1: That um, the opportunity, the obligation, the uh, responsibility for being the artists that we've um, been created to be. Um, I, I, again, I think it's just um, don't forget Don't forget how you got here. You know, in some of the conducting that I've done with professional orchestras, and I don't blame them for this, but sometimes it's become about the master agreement rather than why they got there. It really is important how we play Beethoven. It really is important how well we play Brahms. It really is important to live up to the expectations of the people who wrote the music. It really is important to never forget the opportunity that we have to to do this art form. And for every dollar that's, for every dollar that we pay, there's probably three, four, five dollars that's being contributed by someone else so that we can get to do this. It's almost like the arts is a public trust. And, uh, you know, we, we do ticket sales, we do fundraising, and, you know, someone else is providing for our wonderful opportunity. And where in the world can we do this better than in in our own country? You know, this really is entrepreneurial. This really is uh, a great opportunity. You know, I've been paid all my life to be a professional musician. Where in the world do you get to do that? Uh, You know, it's never been enough pay, but it's it's still, you know, uh, I don't know. I have maybe too much to say, but maybe I've touched on the most important things to my heart is to be faithful people, to be faithful to the art form and to recognize that these are people and that um, our craft is fragile and our physical makeup and our, our personal makeup, our emotional, intellectual and personal makeup is fragile. And so don't forget to celebrate What brought you here? Dance with that one that brought you. (laughs) And uh, whether that's the flute, the trumpet, the voice, the conductor's baton. And uh, just celebrate life because reflecting back over 41 years, in the blink of an eye, I've been doing this for 41 years. And I don't know where that time, I don't know where that time went. And so whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Right?
0: Wow amazing this is i mean this has been amazing um and so great and i know that um like i say you have touched all of our lives in very special ways and we hope that uh, the wisdom and knowledge you just shared with us uh will also uh touch our audience the same way so um we really hope you guys enjoyed uh today's episode thank you again dr plate for being with us today it was a pleasure as always and um we will see you all next week Bye. Stay safe.
1: Thanks for inviting me. Bye.